Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 11th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. I'm trying to make my voice lower because uh-huh. I heard on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me that uh, people prefer that. Oh, so. I see. <laughs> you guys ever listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Every now and then they have some really good uh, musical theater stuff. Uh, really? Yeah. yeah. This weekend they uh, talked about um, yeah. Mo Rocca was on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and he was talking about, tangentially, about uh, Evita and uh, <laughs> and uh, the... And the tr- the Trump performance in the Casa Rosata at sixteen hundred uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, and um, it was very funny. So I wait, wait, don't tell me. It's a very, very funny NPR uh, show and podcast. If you have not listened to it, you should. It's really wonderful. That other voice there is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So, in the news this week, we had uh, a few little uh, tidbits of information that affect us all directly as um, we're going to have a Tony Awards announcement nom- uh, nomination announcements this week. So what do you think about this? Uh, I guess we're going to see um, what's going to happen. But um, more than that, um, it's, it's going to seem anemic, of course. Mm. And uh, I will say this, though. You know, the, the, the famous Shakespearean quote about Nil Wind, the fact remains that some people are going to get nominations who wouldn't have had nominations um, if indeed the season had progressed. Sure. So as a result, uh, some people's resumes are going to look a little bit better as a result of this. And it doesn't mean that these people are unworthy either. Um, I've been on enough nominating committees to know that so many times we are brokenhearted. We have to eliminate somebody because there are only so many slots. So... Um, we'll certainly see people who will, uh, may surprise us. And at this point too, good Lord, our memories, you know, <laughs> will we even say, uh, gee, who was that? I was um, just thinking that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Michael, any thoughts about this? Oh, not especially. I, yes, we've discussed, I, I do think all things considered that it was a mistake to, to have the Tonys now, but I, again, I, I, I'm, loathe to criticize any decision because it's such a right extraordinary extraordinary situation uh so um i guess maybe we should just say that it'll be nice that some very worthy people will be recognized <laughs> i will say this um the theater world awards with which i'm connected um made a decision uh to um give the awards next june when we thought that um, the shows were going to reopen in March because we figured, well, if they open in March, that's essentially with the previous season from June to March, you know, that's a full season and uh, we would let the chips fall where they may. Um, And um, that's what we had hoped. But, you know, this whole thing about May 30th, um, the new date for when uh, things are supposed to start, You know, it reminds me of something else, and I hope I'm right about this, and I'm sure everybody else will feel that I'm right, too. And that is the fact, how many times have we gone into a crowded restaurant without a reservation? And we say, how long a wait will it be? And they say a half hour. And then you're seated after 10 minutes. I believe they know you're going to be seated after 10 minutes or 15, and they say a half hour so that when it is 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you say, oh, that wasn't so bad. Ah, yeah, great. And you're happy. And so I am hoping that, uh, after all, this is not a law that's been passed, that it's going to be May 30th. So I'm hoping that things will improve to the degree that they can open uh, earlier. Even if it's March, that'd be great. So um, we shall see what we shall see, of course. And um, everybody knows enough now not to make any predictions uh, about anything. But um, what was also of interest to me, it, it, wasn't there an implication that if a producer wanted to open before May 30th, that um, he or she could? I, I don't, that in, I don't know I, about that. Yeah, no. I think it's I think Broadway is really waiting on the governor of New York. And and we should say that uh, 
I, I think one of the big impetus behind the official announcement and choosing a date is to make sure that uh, theater um, uh, ticket holders can refund their tickets and right. do do whatever they need to do at, at that point. Uh, so I think if I understand it correctly, I would, I would think that the, um, the major, major hurdle here would be a- uh, actors equity because theoretically, uh, the governor or whoever could say, yes, we will, we will start performances next month. And everyone obviously has the right to buy tickets or not. If you do buy a ticket, you, if you're an audience member, you, you do need to have a mask on at all times. And then they could or could not uh, put in whatever other restrictions they wanted to every other, every fourth seat or, uh, or, or not have that at all and have people sitting right next to each other on, uh, you know, because it's all voluntary and they don't have to do anything. But with actors uh, who are employed for the show and have to rehearse in- intimately, uh, very close to each other and be singing on stage in close p- proximity and dancing and sweating, uh, it's viewed to be a completely different situation. So I think that that is why, I, I, Peter, I wish that what you said were true in this case, that the, your, your analogy to the restaurants. But I, I, if anything, in this case, I think it's the opposite. and It will be later than that. Well, yeah, as I say, nobody can really make any predictions. Yeah. So under, mm-hmm. under promise, over deliver. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. a good mantra for a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I have to pose this question to the two of you. Uh, <laughs> if... Uh, if there was an announcement today that uh, on Tuesday Broadway was reopening, would you go to a show? I would. Yes, I would. Uh, of course, I'd wear my mask. And of course, if somebody near me sneezed, um, I would be very nervous, but I still would go. Yes, I would. I think it's. If, <sighs> I think that's I, the big question for a lot of producers in the league is like, okay, so we have half of the equation. We get shows back open and on stage. Is anybody, is anybody going to show up? But that they could at least see what happens. And then if it's an epic failure, unfortunately, then everything closes and that's the end of theater for a, a long time. Mm-hmm. But, but they can't even do that if equity will not allow, and I under, completely understand why, uh, actors to rehearse and perform in any normal situation. Hmm. Yeah, it's going to... Uh... Again, we are sitting on the sidelines, and all we can do is be a pawn here and watch mm-hmm. to see what all the all the big players uh, do and how they're going to reengage the Broadway community. Uh, you have um, this the uh, the movie theaters, the Regal Cinemas, uh, doing a lot of promotion this week about uh, how that they uh, are dying to reopen and they're being held back by government mm-hmm. mandate. Uh, and I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's the same sort of thing for us. Um, we had some, uh, film crews, uh, film productions, excuse me, film productions that went back into production only to shut down, uh, because the, uh, Mm. the cast and crew got, uh, the COVID virus. So I, I, everybody's trying to feel this out and figure it out. This might be a good time to mention there was a, a, a very major event this week. Uh, as uh, if I can quote from the Playbill article about it, Times Square passersby got an unexpected moment of color and light. Mm-hmm. <laughs> October 7, as several Broadway favorites took to the steps of TKTS to sing the harmonious Sunday from Sunday in the Park with George. Bernadette Peters, who originated the role of Dot in Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Tony and Pulitzer Prize winning musical. Whoops, not Tony. Oh, <laughs> that's what it says. Okay, I'm but just not Tony. Tony. All right. right. Uh-huh. Okay. Took on a solo in the arrangement by James Sampliner, Billy Porter, and Broadway Inspirational Voices founder Michael McElroy. Uh, McElroy conducted the performance as a litany of talent sang the ode to serenity amid chaos. The roster included Tony winners Gavin Creel, Kelly O'Hara, um, and Ariel Stachel. Tony nominees Andrew Rannells, Carolee Carmelo, Norm Lewis, Kate Baldwin, Charles Brown, Jennifer Damiano, Brandon Victor Dixon, and Stark Sands, and Broadway mainstays Jason Gautet, Telly Leung, Andrea Burns, Erica Henningsen, 
Javier Munoz and Sierra Bagas. And I think I saw some others in there as well. Um, Co-produced by former Playbill editor-in-chief Blake Ross, the event was arranged by the new group NYC Next, which aims to celebrate and revitalize the creativity of New Yorkers as a signal of solidarity and resilience. Its current initial tactic, a series of socially distant pop-up events such as this one across all five boroughs, not promoted prior to taking place. And the reason they can't do that is because then it would be considered a gathering and I, I guess not permitted. Uh, so unless you happen to be strolling through Times Square uh, on October 7th when this happened, I, I guess you missed it live. Uh, hopefully you caught a video. I will send the link to James to put in the show notes of um, one of the videos that someone captured of it. And, uh, you know, at least um, I'm sure many people would, would view this as as a, a just a beautiful moment of hopefully encouragement at a very, very dark time. All right. So I do have that uh, video in the show notes, plus uh, the article from the New York Times uh, talking about it. But um, that is kind of, uh, we do have a big week in front of us uh, for announcements and seeing how uh, th- this will be handled um, with the, I'm saying about the Tony Award announcements will be handled. And so I'm sure that we'll talk about it next week. But for right now, let's move on to uh, Michael. You had a bunch of boys in your apartment uh, this week, didn't you? <laughs> I did get to see boys in the band uh, uh, belatedly after uh, the, the rest of you guys, uh, Peter and, and James and, and I guess Jan, uh, Simpson, yeah. who discussed yeah, it last too. week. Uh, so... Uh, I was able to react to it just in itself, but also to what everyone had said. And I completely agree that it's extremely well done. I, I think everyone involved deserves tremendous praise. Uh, uh, and I would say a, a lot, a lot, a lot of praise to Joe Mantello as a director, especially because um, he has very limited, if if any, experience prior experience directing film or television as far as i know uh so i thought he did a really wonderful job it was fascinating for me to see um how some of this film was patterned very closely around the original film Mm -hmm. uh and uh, actually quite a lot of it uh but other places less so mm-hmm. and then the changes that were made the things that were retained um starting with i i just made a bunch of r- random observations that i wrote down and i'll just go through them not in, in necessarily in any order the music is interesting the original uh film starts with anything goes mm-hmm. <laughs> uh it starts with it uh the at the very beginning sung by cole porter himself and then it uh it segues into a uh a uh, version that was, I guess, popular at the time in the late 60s. I it forget. was. The, uh, the name of the group was Harper's Bazaar, and it wasn't like the magazine. It was Harper's B-I-Z-A-R-R-E, <laughs> Harper's Bazaar. So, Thank you. Yes, I, I meant to look that up, and I didn't. So, uh, and, th- and that is used in the original as the, the background music for this scene of the montage of the various characters and their lives around New York City before they arrive at Michael's apartment for this birthday party for Harold. And um, that was pretty much recreated, but there's some interesting changes there. Um, for example, there's uh, the characters of uh, Hank and Larry. And um, in the original film, Larry is the one who's supposed to be, I guess, the more promiscuous mm-hmm. of the couple and the one who is is pushing more for a an open relationship. And in the original, uh, we see him in the bar Julius, which still exists in Greenwich Village. And he's with a bunch of friends. And Hank uh, comes in. Uh, and we don't actually hear what he says, but he, he apparently says something like, when are you coming home? And there's a little bit of a a, mo- a tense moment there between the two of them. In this film, we see Larry actually pick someone up on the street. Uh, and the two of them go to Julius and they are sitting there, uh, just the two of them alone when Hank comes in and, and interrupts that. So that's a little 
different. And I thought that was an interesting change. Um, one thing in general that I thought was so interesting about this film is that um, somehow to me, it didn't look, it didn't especially scream late 60s in terms of the look, uh, the, the fashions, the hair, uh, anything like that. But uh, by the same token, there was almost nothing in it where I could look at it and say, well, that's obviously not from late 60s. Mm-hmm. So I think that was probably a a uh, very conscious decision on the mm-hmm. part of Joe Mantello and the uh, production designers. And I think it was a good one. Um, there was one exception. Uh, there was only one thing that I saw that looked glaringly modern to me. And that was a, f- a very brief scene in that opening montage where Bernard uh, is on the subway. And I thought, gee, that does not look like what I remember as a 1960 1960- nine subway car or 68 subway car excuse me mm-hmm. uh but other than that there wasn't anything that that um that popped out at me uh just random observations here they changed um uh in the first lengthy scene between donald and michael uh donald is talking about how michael is such a spendthrift and he spends so much money on so many things and i guess he's we're supposed to think that he's in a lot of debt uh he's he he a lot of credit card debt um and he mentions uh in the original he mentions that he spends his money on going to places like le pavillon well in this <laughs> version he says joe allen and I, and that was the one mistake the one outright <laughs> mistake i thought of in the movie because joe allen is not thought of as a uh, you know as a pricey pricey uh four star five star restaurant where someone spends tremendous amounts of money uh, uh, uh michael i'm sorry i hate to correct you on this but actually what it is um <clears throat> oh no you're right you're right you're right i'm thinking of something else sorry although that that, right. that chocolate volcano dessert cake thing can get pri- pricey you know <laughs> oh yeah i mean and you know don't get yeah you can spend money there but no, i just thought right. that it, you know that they could have changed it to <laughs> sure. something like um Lutess or, or some some no boo. You know, it is. <laughs> yeah i don't know yeah something like that um uh zachary quinto i thought was absolutely excellent as harold uh but uh he, <laughs> i'm gonna be picky here there are two words he mispronounces <laughs> And I checked back uh, the original. Leonard Fry does them perfectly. It's it's haute cuisine, not haute cuisine. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you're not supposed to pronounce the And uh, unfortunately, Mr. Quinto did not pronounce sommelier correctly. Is it Quinto or Quinto? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had no. And on that note, I have heard both. Um, so I I should check that out. <laughs> yes. Ha <laughs> <laughs> funny. Um. Uh. What which which do you think is is? I think it's uh, Quinto. I would have guessed Quinto, but I I don't know. Gee, you Wikipedia know, um, says we Quinto. A, uh, we gave him a Theater World Award, and we called him Quinto, and he certainly didn't correct us. Yeah, I think that the name is Italian, so it would be Quinto. Uh, okay. um, but anyway, uh, all right, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's our Italian authority. Yes. Um, all those operas. Yes, yeah, they're sitting right here, let me tell you. Um, Alan's entrance to the party um, uh, and uh, Michael's first drink, I thought those were two moments in this film that were maybe a little bit heavy-handed. But again, overall, I think that the acting and the directing was just superb by, by really everyone, every single person. Uh, Robin DeJesus was superb superb as ever really you know and i i guess this is one of the examples where having a gay man play a gay man really pays off uh, Mm. because i really felt i was watching the real thing and uh, i mean i was never bothered by cliff gorman's performance i always thought he was terrific but it it seems a little inauthentic now um compared to um robin's performance so and I have a question related to that that maybe you, you both might weigh in on. I, I, I did the only negative in, in, in uh, Robin DeJesus' interpretation was that I thought that uh, somebody like that would not probably be named Emery. And I did wonder hmm. because it seemed to me that there was absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing in the writing, all the, the, all the original lines that were retained that indicated why he could not be a Latino. 
you know, a Hispanic person, but except the name. So I wonder if they, uh, I suspect maybe they considered, maybe they considered changing it uh, and decided that they, that would be too big a change from the original. Um, I was wondering f- about your guys' thoughts on that. Well, um, not that this is so important, but you would lose the joke when Michael calls him Emery Board. Um, also, did they still call him Emily? Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> Bernard says that. Yes, indeed. Um, so, yes, that did come up as well. Um, I, I just took it as non-traditional casting, frankly. Right. But what I'm saying is that in this case, I thought it was interesting that I didn't see I didn't see any single moment in the script uh, where it would be uh, counteractive to him being actually Latino. And that would have been, uh, you know, interesting because, of course, Africans and African-Americans are already represented by Bernard. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a- anyway, I'm glad I'm, whatever the reason, I'm so glad he was cast. He was brilliant on stage and he was brilliant in the movie. And I, I think he deserves any award that anyone wants to give him. Mm-hmm. Um, the. Uh, there were some really, really um, interesting moments where the actors really focused in on various things. Uh, um, Robin DeJesus' acting of the phone call was was just beautiful. Um, that moment where um, Michael reveals that Harold is stockpiling pills, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with perhaps the thought of offing himself, mm-hmm. was a, was so incredibly well done. If you look back at this film and see. Zachary's reaction to that he, he, he you can tell he is like appalled that Michael has told everyone this because apparently Michael is the only one who knew it and that really uh, is the engine for a lot of what happens subsequently in the party between Harold and Michael um, I thought the racial things that they kept and the things that they did not keep were very interesting the word pickaninny is still uh, what has been changed to a little black eyed pea um, that the, these are the uh, the little epithets that Emery aims at Bernard because as a part of a, his humor uh, and but the queen of spades was retained and also the line a drumbeat and their eyes sparkle like Cartier's all of that was retained well, I, and especially I, um the um, song that Michael sings too with the N word. I'm amazed that has passed muster. Yeah, there were two. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna like say or spell these words now. He says he actually says nigra, and then the other version of the word N I G G E R. He that is also retained. But did you notice what they did there? Somebody else said a word while he was saying that. So it it. Uh, it was still there, but it made it a little less toxic. And I think that was a brilliant decision because it made the point without, because uh, I, I think, unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, I guess, uh, nowadays when we hear that word, uh, when any of us hears that word, it, it so takes us out of whatever ha- whatever is happening because it's so shocking that it's hard to get back into it, even if, uh, even if it only takes a few moments. Yeah, and the thing was, when I heard that Mark Crowley was going to be um, streamlining the script, I was 100% certain mm. that would be the first thing to go. Hmm. Yes, and and, and it, it hasn't remotely been. It was at the revival, and here it is too. I think I, I feel like I'm going on, so I'll I'll, I'll end soon. But um, I think they really hammered home the fact that everyone is getting not only very drunk, but also extremely stoned uh, during this party, and that ex- explains a lot of what happens during the party game. Uh, many people have said, "Why would these people stick around?" Blah 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 blah, uh, and. Uh, and why would they react that way? I think that we we see them drinking and smoking uh, marijuana very heavily. So uh, I, I think that's extremely important to what happens. And on that note, there was uh, one final decision that I'll note that I thought was extremely brilliant. When Michael first proposes the game where all of these each of these fellows have to call the one person that they loved and see if they are actually up to telling them that they love them uh the first person who goes is bernard and brilliant directorial and or acting decision 
when he's starting to make the phone call, Bernard seems really excited about it. Uh, you know, he thinks uh, he's mm-hmm. thinking about talking to this person again after how many years. And he, I guess we're supposed to think he thinks it might go well and he might be really happy to hear from him. And then it's only when it goes mm-hmm. very poorly uh, that that's the first indication that this whole game was a tremendous mistake and then bernard starts urging everyone else not to do it and i thought that was a a a major major change without changing a word of the script and then a perfect example of the excellent excellent work that joe mantello and everyone else did on this wonderful remake which has got to be counted among the very very few remakes of a movie that are as good as uh at least as good as, and some would say arguably better than the original. Yeah, I think it's better. And uh, for that matter, uh, when you talk about the Bernard phone call, yes, one could make a case that he's enthusiastic just from the vantage point that Peter Dalbeck, the man that he loved, has been divorced for, or is getting divorced for the third time. Yes, yes. Good point. Excellent point. Oh, by the by the way, the music um uh, the other music that was right. used. This yeah. is so rich. In the uh, in the original film, the uh, there's a, a very romantic dance that that winds up happening between everyone when they <laughs> when they're really getting stoned and drunk. And the music in that version is the look of love, but in this film, it's this guy's in love with you. Mm-hmm. And both songs are by <laughs> Bert Bert Bacharach Bacharach. and Hal mm-hmm. David. <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing. Uh, you know what I was thinking while watching this film? That uh, I was thinking that Promises, Promises, exactly opened on yeah. Broadway in December 1968, uh, which I guess would have been right after the uh, the setting of the action in this film, because uh, there is a brief little uh, text at the beginning that says. Uh, I think it says summer 1968, or maybe it just says 1968, but we assume it's summer or uh, early fall, I suppose. It drove me crazy in 1968 that uh, that song was so popular, and I thought this could be in Promises, Promises. Can't you see Jerry Orbach singing to Jill O'Hara, This Guy's in Love With You? There are very (laughs) few lyrics in that song that do not apply to the character of Chuck Baxter in Promises, Promises. It would have been so great to have had a song that was so popular that year to be in Promises, Promises. Yes, Promises, Promises had I'll Never Fall in Love Again, which, by the way, was added during the tryout, but the fact is to have another hit song is never a liability. And I was really angry that they didn't put it in the show where it fits so wonderfully. And it didn't even show up in the revival where they added songs by Backrack. It is such a logical thing. Yes, a couple of lines would have to be changed, but most of them fit perfectly with the character. Right. <laughs> so, uh, that is our review of Boys in the Band. That's on Netflix, the uh, the remake, the movie that is currently out. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, something else that happened uh, this week is that there was an Amfar fundraiser for uh, uh, to fight COVID nineteen, and. Uh, there was uh, scenes from Angels in America, and we didn't see it. We're not going to review it, but uh, a few of our listeners brought it up and uh, actually sent along the link to the YouTube where there's about 50 minutes of different scenes in it. And that'll be in the show notes. So if you'd be interested in that, get over to the show notes at broadwayradio.com and you can see the scenes uh, there. Take a look at it. So our topic for this week is a tribute to triple threat performers. Michael, you brought up this topic. Why don't you tell us uh, why you brought it up and more about it? Well, it was prompted by the death of Tommy Rawl, uh, who I had mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago because he had had uh, heart surgery and one of his dear friends, uh, this woman named Cynthia Wands had um, said that he would love to receive cards and letters from fans. And apparently he, he did. Uh, Tommy Rawl was one of the great, one of the great performers uh, back in the day, I guess, beginning in the fifties on Broadway and then in films like seven brides for seven brothers and um, my sister Eileen and, uh, he uh the what cynthia had written uh originally was i'm very sorry to share the news 
uh, well, what she wrote in announcing his death then uh, just a few days ago was, I'm very sorry to share the news that our dear Tommy Rawl died tonight of congestive heart failure. Um, But I want to share with folks here a rather magical story of Tommy's passing. A hospice nurse was by Tommy's bedside and found a box that held the cards and letters that had been sent to him in the last few weeks. Mm. She spent the afternoon reading each one to him. Uh. And when she finished reading the last one, he peacefully stopped breathing and passed away. She was very moved by the experience and wanted to share that story with the family. Um, Tommy would have turned 91 this coming uh, December, so he didn't make it to 91, but he made it to 90. It was an incredible career, as I said, uh, on Broadway in shows like Milk and Honey, uh, in which he revealed an operatic quality voice in addition to the, the magnificent dancing that we already knew he could do. Uh, he just really apparently gene kelly uh had said something to the effect of he was the best <laughs> he was really? the best dancer we had at mgm mm-hmm. you know so uh, so i i can't put it any better than that he he was a true triple threat performer he even did some um non-musical films as well uh and he is the kind of talent that i think so many people can just look at and marvel and aspire to. And uh, people like that are, are um, particularly awesome. I think, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to just, just be a great singer or a great actor and, and, uh, and, uh, or a great dancer. And a- any of those is enough, I would say. But when one has two or three of them together, that's really, really, really special. Hmm. Uh, Tony Janicki adds that uh, Tommy was also in Cry for Us All. Yeah. Yeah. And he was terrific in it. So, uh, Peter, who is on your list of triple threats? I'm going to pick a name that seems reasonably obscure, and yet he's won three Tony Awards, and that's Hinton Battle. Ah. And, um, yeah, I know that that sounds a little odd to start with, but um, he, he won Tony's for Sophisticated Ladies and the Tap Dance Kid. And, I mean, those are really dancing roles, though he sings very well. Uh, but then he won a Tony for Miss Saigon, where really he had to act as well as sing because he had to play the role of John, uh, the person who was very intent on getting uh, those boudoirs, as they're called, um, in the proper homes um, and making sure that the men who impregnated Vietnamese women <clears throat> um, take responsibility for what happened and, and uh, adopt their children or at least get them into good homes. And he was very, very effective. Uh, that's where the acting chops came in mm. because we had already known by that point that he could sing and dance. Ironically, <clears throat> his big break came in The Wiz in uh, 1974 now, some people may say, no, 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 The Wiz was 1975. Yes, it opened on Broadway in 1975, but his break came in 1974 because when they were in Baltimore, uh, Stu Gilliam, who had the role, a comedian who literally, ironically enough, died seven years ago today, um, Stu Gilliam, a, a comic, was playing uh, the role of the uh, Scarecrow. And... Um, and wow, you know, he just didn't want to do it after that disastrous opening performance that I witnessed in Baltimore. I really believe that was the one and only performance he did. So Hinton Battle, all of 17 years old, was hmm. the understudy. Hmm. And um, he came in and um, and while he didn't get a Tony nomination for that, he certainly made up with, for other roles. But um, that had to be trial by fire. And, you know, I, what was really interesting to me about Stu Gilliam, after they went to Baltimore, um, they were going to Detroit, which was Stu Gilliam's hometown. Um, was that part of his decision to not uh, stay with the show, that he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of hometown people? Who knows? But anyway, the fact is that um, Hinton Battle, you know, we don't see him very much. He was in the movie of Dreamgirls, and I don't know what he's decided to do with his life, but uh, maybe he felt, you know, three Tonys, um, I'm fine. You know, maybe I'll um, do something like Bobby Steggert has done and, you know, just give it up to do social work. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, he certainly was so effective and surprised me so much when he had to act in Miss Saigon that um, I really put him on my list of triple 
threats first and foremost. I have uh, Hinton in the 2014 off-Broadway production of Cindy the Musical. Wow, I didn't uh, see that. (laughs) I didn't see it. I don't know anything about Cindy the Musical. (laughs) I'm I'm wondering if that... There was a musical in the 63-64 season called Cindy, uh, off-Broadway. It got an album, um, and uh, I wonder if it was a revival of that. Uh, There have been a lot of Cindy's. There was one on TV, too, that um, was a musical that had nothing to do with the show I just mentioned. But anyway. Hmm. All right, Michael, what's next on your list? Another great artist we recently lost was Armelia McQueen. Uh, so she would definitely be in the category. And, 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 th- and that would lead us to, I would say, anyone who was ever in Ain't Misbehaving, uh, including Andre DeShields, who is still very much with us. And there's a person who, uh, that's a real triple threat. Uh, he's mm. even done a lot of non-musical <clears throat> theater, including, I'll, I'll never forget how he... Uh, retained his dignity, one might say, uh, in in a oh, major. Primate? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 A very very problematic play. Let's leave it that way. Called Primate, but he 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 managed to do it on his sheer acting ability and charisma alone. But in show in so many other shows like The Wiz and, and so many other things that he's done over the decades, and now in Hades Town. There's a true triple threat. Armelia McQueen, um, uh, certainly, uh, although, uh, uh, again, not, not a lot of credits. In fact, very few. But what she did, she really shone. And, and fortunately, there is a video of Ain't Misbehaving uh, for those who did not see it. Uh, so wonderful to have uh, performances like that preserved in some way on video, uh, especially when they're professionally done. And, and of course, it's not the same. Of course, not the same as seeing it live uh, and with an audience. But still, it's so much better than nothing. And uh, in terms of record keeping and, uh, and per- perpetuating uh, the, the thoughts of, of people like that who, and having us be able to see their gifts preserved uh, in in video and audio form like that. We also have to remember that Jerome Robbins was essentially the creator of the triple threat in West side story. Uh, this was the show that was the first, I think mm. not to have a separate chorus of singers and a separate chorus of dancers. Mm. Um, it, it, you had one size fit all. And of course the person that emerged most from that was Cheetah Rivera, um, who certainly has shown over the years that she's a triple threat because Lord knows that she could dance. Lord knows that she could sing and she could act as well. And I was, you know, it made perfect sense to me. Um, If if Cheetah Rivera had won the Tony for Bye Bye Birdie or West Side Story, um, that would have been fine. I'm not taking it away from her at all. But nevertheless, it makes sense um, that she won for The Rink uh, because that was a role where she really did have to act, playing the um, mother of a a child who didn't turn out to be the way that she wanted her to be. And of course, the person who played her child was a triple threat too. And that's, of course, Liza Minnelli, uh, who proved in the movie of Cabaret. Well, even before that, in Tell Me That You Love Me, Junie Moon, mm-hmm. in Charlie Bubbles, that she could mm-hmm. act. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't just a case that she can sing and dance. I still remember the first time I saw the Cabaret movie, and there she is doing mine hair, and uh, she's doing all these um, <laughs> dance moves on a chair. And I'm thinking, well, that chair is obviously, you know, attached to, to the floor. I mean, you know, she couldn't be able to move that chair if it wasn't uh, <laughs> cemented to the floor. And then she picks up the chair, you know, so you knew it wasn't. <laughs> and there was no cut. So, I mean, really, I mean, a terrific dancer, terrific singer, and a, an excellent actress as well, which is why um, she won the Oscar um, for Cabaret. It wasn't just the singing and dancing, but she was very, very effective as Sally Bowles. And most people I know feel that she was the best Sally Bowles ever. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, we all have our favorites, but if if I had to really assess over the years, uh, when I've asked people who have you liked best as Sally Bowles, the majority have said uh, Liza Minnelli. So a true triple threat. And going back to Cheetah, certainly, certainly Cheetah, but that leads me to actually the first person I thought of when 
after Tommy Rawl when, when this topic came up, and that's Gwen Verdon. Sure. Uh, I love the comment that she apparently actually said in real life, which is recreated in the Fosse Verdon film when she was when there was discussion of whether she would appear on Broadway in a non-musical role in Children, Children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sh- uh, there was some question as to whether she could act in a <laughs> in a in a non-musical and she said something to the effect well what do they think i was doing in all of those shows between the songs <laughs> you know which of course the response to that is and not only between the songs but during the song sure you know musical That's theater right. needs to be acted not you just song. how how unbearable would a would a musical theater number be if somebody just sang it and didn't act mm, it. Mm. Uh, so she was one of the greats. We've um, all been to those shows, though. Yes, we have. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hopefully not too many. Uh, Peter's uh, remark about West Side Story is very well taken. I would say arguably anyone who's ever appeared in West Side Story is a triple threat. Um, one could also say that about other shows like uh, currently Ain't Too Proud, um, that Jeremy Pope, he's he's quite a triple threat. Uh, well, yeah, in fact, uh, we get we gave him the Theater World Award for two shows because he was in Choir Boy, you know, yes. uh, where where he certainly had to act. Yeah. So you're very well taken point. Uh, uh, everyone in that cast, but uh, someone in particular who I was familiar with is a fellow named James Harkness, who played Paul Williams in uh, Ain't Too Proud, and he's been around for decades without really you know without without ever becoming a star but there's a there's an example of someone who's like a just a, a rock of of the broadway theater and a true triple threat and there are so many of them who uh, but they don't always become stars you know sometimes they're um they're so versatile that uh that it kind of uh, almost works against their stardom because there's they can do anything and that that could also be said uh one might say that anyone who's ever been in forbidden broadway is a triple threat very good point yes indeed <laughs> whoa yeah maybe a and quadruple then, threat because you have to be an impersonator too exactly thank you thank you and then uh, <laughs> you know but other shows like uh, uh shuffle along there were probably five or six triple threats in that show. Well, I mean, the shuffle along cast was just unbelievably... Unbelievable, yes. Uh, as and, we talked about a few weeks ago. And, and Brian Stokes Mitchell was certainly a triple threat, because don't forget that he did the Lord. August Wilson play, um, King Headley II, and um, and he was terrific in it. Um, terrific indeed. But, you know, I, I talked about this this week, and it was <laughs> to, uh, to a friend who... When I mentioned Kristen Chenoweth in this capacity, and, and he said, um, "Gee, can she dance?" And uh-huh. what we forget is that uh, she first got noticed, and again, another Theatre World Award winner in Steel Pier, uh, which certainly involved a lot of dancing because oh, the yes. whole show was about a dance marathon. So, and he said, "Well, well but, but acting? I mean, like?" Uh, and I said, "You know." She was so wonderful in the play that I think was terribly underrated called Epic Proportions about um, Uh, a a movie that just wasn't working out. Uh, The the craziness that goes on when you're trying to film um, an epic um, dealing with uh, a Lawrence of Arabia type of movie. And, uh, and she was delightful. And, but, uh, when she did the apple tree, uh, and this brings up Michael points about how you have to act uh, theater songs. When she did the song, what makes me love him? Boy, was their acting in that performance right then and there. I'm telling you, it was an astonishing achievement to watch her deliver that song with such sincerity and such passion. And she really convinced us that that's where um, she really did act musical theater songs. So I think she really was terrific in that. And um, so I would definitely put her on my list. So um, just as we were starting this uh, this topic, um well, our listener, Tim Black, chimed in with a bunch of folks that uh, want to get your takes on. Carol Burnett, Sutton Foster, Jonathan Groff, Ben Vereen, and Cheetah Rivera. He talked about Cheetah before. Yeah, you had mentioned- Ben Vereen yeah. was on my list. Um, and um, Sutton Foster is a very good choice, uh, certainly because she had to do some dancing in Thoroughly Modern Millie. And, um, and of course, she's uh, been on TV series. So um, as a result, she certainly is an excellent choice and should be on the list. Um, who else was on his list? Go on. Uh, the, the cl- uh, his list was Carol Burnett. 
uh, Sutton Foster you talked about, Jonathan Groff, Ben Vereen, and Cheetah Rivera. You know, I'm going to say something controversial here because um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've had a lot of people uh, disagree with me on that. But to me, uh, Carol Burnett is not a good singer. And again, I have certainly had people blanch when I say that. But, you know, there was actually an album once called Carol Burnett Sings. Mm. Um, and the implication <laughs> was that you wouldn't expect her to. And um, yeah, I, I found the voice unpleasant. We all have those people who we don't like the voice. Carol Burnett fits in that category for me, so I wouldn't have thought to put her on the list. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's not a grading voice. It's not chalk on a blackboard to me, but it's, it's just not somebody um, that I particularly uh, think of as a singer. And, um, yeah, she does, she does a decent job on Fade Out, Fade In. She does a decent job on um, Meantime when she did a, um, the TV special with uh, Julie Andrews. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, she just falls a little bit short for me. Um, on an A-list for a singer, she would be a B to me. Hmm. Uh, Amy Lai in- includes that uh, she thinks uh, Tony Yazbek and Stephanie J. Block are both oh, gosh. very yeah. good. Very yeah. good, yeah. Um, certainly Tony Yazbek, um, uh, who really is very convincing when he has to act, both uh, in song and um, in dialogue. Uh, yes, indeed. And one of our most valuable performers. Um, I don't want to forget Gregory Hines, um, ah, who uh, yeah. certainly could sing. He certainly could dance. And that mm. was really what he was best known for, especially tapping. Um, but Notice how many dramatic roles he played in in films, especially. I mean, who'd expect a tap dancer to be in a movie called Wolfen? Um, But there he was, you know, a a drama about, um, I believe it was about catching a criminal. I saw the movie way back when, when it was first released. I was invited to a screening, but I I think that's what it was about. But anyway, I remember being so taken with him about how convincing he was. And certainly in the Cotton Club movie, he certainly has to do a great deal of... uh, acting and certainly acquits himself very, very nicely. Somebody we lost much too young. He was only 57 when he died, and it really mm. was a shame. And, you know, <clears throat> when you really look back on that career, I don't know if you know or remember this, but he and his brother Maurice were actually in up in Central no, I'm sorry. Um, it's not the <laughs> the girl in pink tights. Um, and uh, in 1954, they had the same composer. That's what made me think of it. Um, and um, they were little boys. And they were tap dancing there. Yeah, yeah. The girl in pink tights. I think it was 54. So um, even though he didn't um, live nearly as long as we would have liked, I mean, he would only be 74 now. The fact remains that um, um, he did certainly accomplish a great deal singing, dancing, and acting in his 57 years. Uh, among the uh, new younger people, uh, someone that I have been so impressed with recently is Corbin Blue. Uh, oh, he, yeah. he, yeah, he really has got it all. And then there are other people who um, we don't necessarily think of them immediately as triple threats because maybe they've gained most of their attention for one or two of yeah, their talents, like Gregory. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, but uh, Gavin Creel would be one. Mm-hmm. And here's one, Laura Osnes. Now I don't think that anyone wouldn't necessarily think of Laura primarily as a great dancer. But actually, last night I, I was talking to a friend and he said that they were so impressed when they saw her in Cinderella, uh, where you would not necessarily think that would be a role uh, that would call on her to show that talent. But she she really did, uh, in addition to her beautiful voice and her wonderful presence and her acting ability and uh, you know that, that that's a kind of a role i think cinderella that is actually far more difficult to play than many people realize uh and that that's a that's a wonderful triple threat performer that you've got there in laura osnes well, well band, let's not forget stand. too yeah, yeah, and for that matter, Greece, uh, which yeah. was her big break. Now, think about it. We mm. we had that um, TV competition to find out who was going to be Sandy and uh, Danny. You're the one that I want. Was that what it's called? 
I, I don't remember I, if that I, was... Help us uh, out, Rob Johnson. You're the one that I want. Is that the Laura Osnes thing that she wanted? It certainly would have been a great title for that. I thought that was the one for the British one, but no, I could be wrong. Yes, that's the one, yeah. yeah okay. Rob, Rob says so. And okay. Well, I defer to I'm Rob not, on I'm those definitely, things. Yeah, <laughs> I'll defer too. Uh, but anyway, the point is, um, obviously, during that series, um, she was called on to dance quite a bit by um, Kathleen Marshall. And um, it, so right then and there... Before she even got to Broadway, millions, literally, of people saw that she could dance, saw that she could sing, mm. and maybe not as much act, but uh, nevertheless, she was wonderful in Cinderella. She, she, you know, we've talked about this, Laura and I, and the thing is, you know, she fully expected that she would really have two strikes against her with much of the theatrical community when she came here because she had won in a TV competition, which struck many people as vulgar. So as a result, um, she really had a lot to prove, and she proved it really quickly because she was in a number of things really fast, and she was terrific in all of them, and she is definitely one of our most valuable leading ladies. So Rob Johnston uh, seconds uh, Sutton Foster, Tony Yazbek. He also brings up James Monroe Iglehart. As uh, sure. you ain't never had a friend like me. He just in one song proves everything, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> Tony Janicki brings up uh, Helen Gallagher was a triple threat. She won ah. several Emmys for Ryan's Hope. Yes, very yes. good, very good indeed. And you know, I mean, that's that's one of those things where. Um, a career can get derailed because of the wrong vehicle because, of course, she had done so well. She had even won a Tony Award in 1952, um, well, maybe 53, depending on when they gave out the prizes, um, for Pal Joey, and that got her Hazel Flag, the musical that was supposed to make her a superstar, and it wasn't that good a show. And under those circumstances, she sort of faded a bit, and who knew that she was going to make this amazing comeback in No, No, Nanette? But yes, indeed, um, no matter what we feel about soap operas you certainly have to act and um they wouldn't have made her the superstar in ryan hope that she became she was on for many 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 seasons and you know the people do get written out of soap operas why wasn't she the acting i'm sure was a part of the reason why she stayed in there for so long so peter i'm gonna uh juliet Green brings up somebody, and uh, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned her yet, <laughs> because whenever I hear her name, I think of H-A-P-P-Y-Y. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so are we talking about both David Carroll and Michael Jeter? Um, oh, well, Jane so- Krakowski. <laughs> yeah, Jane Krakowski is phenomenal, and uh, today's her birthday, by the way. And, oh, um, <laughs> Really? Yeah, and Jeter, um, and Mike. Yeah, yeah but, but, but when I think of uh, the the um, the happy song, uh, which does lead into um, "We'll Take a Dance Together," um, uh, the second greatest production number I've ever seen after "Who's That Woman." Um, Sure. I mean, Michael Jeter, uh, amazing. Um, uh, I remember talking to a cast member, I won't say who, of. Um, of Grand Hotel after Michael Cheater had left. And um, I'm not going to even say which of the performers, because a few performers then took on that role uh, during the thousand plus performance run. And I said, how's the new guy? Oh, he's great. He's great. Oh, he's terrific. Yeah. Oh, he's wonderful. You know, uh, boy, he's so touching and at the grand and oh, whoa. And um, who wouldn't dance with you? Oh, he's so good there. You know, so I, I said, um, how, how does he do in, um, and we'll take a glass together. Oh, he's great. He's great. I said, how does he do with the bar? And uh, because Michael Cheetah did watch it on the tone. He's phenomenal. Um, that's when he, the, the whole enthusiasm dropped. And he said, oh, nobody can do the bar like Michael. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and that was that. So, uh, yeah. So, so that's why I thought of uh, the two guys first. Um, when uh, two guys we lost much too young, too. You know, really. Sure. It's, just, yes. it's amazing. And um, we do have to wonder if all those drugs that Michael Jeter took and he admitted to those uh, when he gave his Tony speech um, took its toll. Who knows? Who knows? So uh, Amy Lai brings up uh, Stephanie J. Block and the boys from Oz and Anything Goes. Uh, certainly well-remembered performances. Uh, and Tim Black is also talking about uh, the classics, Carol Channing, Tommy Toon. These are uh, people who certainly uh, have have left their imprint upon uh, the Broadway and global audiences. It's funny you don't think of Carol Channing necessarily as a dancer, but of course she did teach Barnaby and Cornelius to dance and dancing, <laughs> didn't she? So, <laughs> so I guess I guess she qualifies. I don't know. You know, I wonder. Um, you know, Ann Miller, of course, was a phenomenal dancer, and. Um, 
And of course, you originated Sugar Babies. And then there was a very short live tour of Sugar Babies. Mm. I'm not even know if tour is the right word, because I think... I think they only played Boston. Um, Carol Channing and Robert Morse took on the roles of um, Ann Miller and uh, Mickey Rooney. And I don't know what happened there. I have no idea what happened there, but something did that didn't work out. I'll tell you, my son, who was six years old at the time, thought they were terrific, if that means anything. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, um, I, I would think that with those two names, um, even if there were some bugs to be ironed out, mm-hmm. they had a whole tour. But something went wrong there. And if anybody knows what happened there, I'd love to hear what it was. I'm glad you mentioned Ann Miller, because when I was reciting uh, Tommy Rawls' credits earlier, I somehow left out the movie or Kiss Me Kate which has several triple threats in it, including Ann Miller and Tommy Rawl. And I remember when, I may have mentioned this before, that when Ann Miller opened in Sugar Babies on Broadway, uh, a friend of mine, a performer, went to see the show and could not stop talking about how great her singing was. Mm. Uh, She expected her dancing to to be phenomenal, of course. But... Uh, and we'd heard her sing in movies, including Kiss Me Kate. But uh, hearing the, that power uh, and the uh, beauty of that belt voice that she displayed in in Sugar Babies uh, was, I completely understand why my friend had that reaction because I had the same reaction when I then went to see the show. Uh, it was extraordinary. Well, it, uh, I believe. I could be wrong, but I believe that the first time the world really saw Ann Miller was in a comic role that had nothing to do with singing and dancing. And that was the hmm. movie of You Can't Take It With You, I hmm. think. Um, or maybe a a, uh, Stage Door was around that same time. But I think maybe, uh, yeah, I think maybe uh, You Can't Take It With You was even earlier. Hmm. I don't know. But... Um, but anyway, um, that also brings up Ginger Rogers because um, mm-hmm. in the movie uh, Roxy Hart, the movie um, of the Chicago play that was done, it was called Roxy Hart. I'll never forget seeing it um, at a revival house um, back in the 70s. And she is so effective in um, in her comedic chops. I mean, she is so funny. She is so convincing. I mean, you know the character of Roxy Hart, which she has to be. Um, she's tough when she has to be. She's funny when she has to be. And then suddenly, in the middle of the movie, she starts dancing. And I rem- uh, there's just a moment, just, uh, I don't know, I don't even think it's 30 seconds, but she starts dancing. I don't remember the motivation, but she starts dancing. And I remember that day saying, wow, she can dance too. And I thought, wait a minute, this is Ginger Rogers. Of course she can dance. But I mean, she was so effective in her acting that I had forgot that she had made her career as um, as certainly a dancer. And of course, she was in that original production of Girl Crazy way back in 1930 and um, had to sing there, too. So, um, yes, indeed, uh, she has to be on our list as well. <laughs> All right. So uh, Amy, Ly- Amy Ly brings up uh, Shirley MacLaine. Do you guys have anybody else that you'd like to talk about before we wrap up? I think I went through almost. A, oh, uh, but, you know, there are the people who become triple threats through really hard work. For example, Angela Lansbury. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I mean, she has spoken about how hard she worked on MAME uh, in, in terms of Im- improving both her singing and her dancing. Uh, and th- I would say that after seeing her in that show, uh, that every, anyone would say she was a true triple threat. And, and maybe those are the people who um, deserve the greatest respect and the greatest praise because they don't uh, innately have all of those talents uh, from, a, from a very young age, and they have to work at it. Uh, so I think that, that I would like to end on her as a, as a really, really shining example of a triple threat. And what also made it hard for Angela Lansbury is she knew that she was hardly the first choice for the role. Yes, 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 yes. Hardly, (laughs) yes. Well, I guess that uh, wraps it up for our list. That is just uh, some of the names that come off the top of our heads for triple threats, but certainly not all of the triple threats that we know. Uh, We didn't mention our American in Paris, Robert Fairchild, but... uh, but uh, Nikki Juven did. So 
Before we get on to trivia, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that way. Each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. So iHeartRadio places, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? What's the longest word to be found in any <laughs> musical theater song? No, not supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, <laughs> the 34-letter word that was the first guess from Nikki Juven, Tony Janicki, Josh Israel, Paul Whitty's daughter. He didn't give me her name. Cheryl Hodges Selden, Pat Payne, and Richard Carey. Brigadude said supercalifragilisticexpialidocious shouldn't be eligible because it wasn't really a musical theater song, mm-hmm. but a musical movie song. Mm-hmm. So he opted for Mississippi, the name of the river in the song that Ethel Merman and Paula Lawrence did in the 1943 musical Something for the Boys. <laughs> that has 30 letters in it. No, the word I was looking for has 58 letters in it. Which is the name of the town in Wales that is the last word in The Boy From. Music by Mary Rogers, lyric by Stephen Sondheim, originally written for The Mad Show. Now it came to my mind because I heard Laura Benanti's new and terrific recording of it on her new album, Cigarettes and Chocolate Milk, which comes out on October 23rd. So who got it? Steve Bell. Steve Bell was the first to get it, followed by... Well, Steve knows Laura, you know? <laughs> so that... <laughs> Steve knows Laura from way before Broadway. That's why. <laughs> well, okay, but he still gets credit, uh, followed by Tony Janicki, Josh Israel, Paul Whitty, and Richard Carey on their second guesses um, after purveying Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, et cetera. But Michael Wannis got it on his first try, as did Jeff Hickman who said he's half Welsh and as a child actually visited this town. Oh, my gosh. So he had the answer right down to the letter. Wow. All right. I thought it was going to be the uh, place, uh, the musical Smile, because it's got a mile in it. (laughs) And there are a lot of towns mentioned in that one, too. Okay, this one's really crazy. Yeah. And it it happened simply because I made a typo while writing about My Fair Lady, which has nothing to do with this question. Don't look for My Fair Lady. Okay. This legendary composer-lyricist won one and only one Best Score Tony. The surname by which the world knows him is not the surname he had at birth. He changed it. Hmm. But his real surname is an anagram of the surname of an actress who appeared in a musical that same season that virtually everybody thinks should have won best score. (laughs) Who's the composer lyricist? What's his real surname? What's the anagram surname of the actress? And what musical was she in that has passed the test of time as the better score? I'm exhausted. (laughs) All right. If you understand that question, if you understand that question and you have an answer or you just want to curse at us, uh, email us at trivia at broaderradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Just what to do and how to do it. You've got to know what tea to brew and how to brew it. You've seen the sign that says George Washington once slept here. Well, though nobody spied him, guess who was beside him? Bring on that boy, he'll be a toy. To Lola, just one more case she can erase. With that old Bafola, what's my plan? Same as with any man, I'll use the standard pata plus a little visa. Uh.
And a little that uh, With an emphasis On the 